Um, we're changing up the service today, and um, before we get into the Word, I just want to make an announcement. It's been in the bulletin. Ben will probably share something later. Um, but uh, as you've read in the uh, announcements in the bulletin, Pastor Ben came to me a few weeks back and uh, sort of shared about uh, an opportunity that's come his way and how God's been working through his life, different journey. And uh, we all have different journeys in life. Uh, as kids go from maybe from preschool into school or out of school into graduation, out of graduation into uh, the workforce, whatever. Or singles get married and, you know, marriages have kids and then there's death. There's all kinds of journeys in life, right? Uh, job changes, that kind of thing. And um, Pastor Ben and Danielle are pursuing a different journey now. Uh, and if this week and next week they're here leading worship. Uh, but after, after next week, uh, he'll be pursuing a new journey in his life. And so we want to pray for them and wish them the best. And uh, so as a church, you know the way it works with us. Things come and change in this church and sort of rock us and roll us, but God is faithful and he keeps this church moving forward through all things. Uh, whether it's a staff change or a building change or whatever it might be, uh, God is so faithful. So we believe that whatever plans has, God has for this church, um, they're the right plans. And we stand on that. And uh, we're just thankful that Ben and Danielle and their family, Macy and Caleb, have been able to bless us over the last uh, 16 months with their presence and different things they've done. So uh, just to bring awareness, if you haven't read that email, this was news to you today. Uh, it's been out there a few weeks. I think it's circulated in conversation. This is a small town community. You hear a lot, so you maybe already knew. Uh, but to make sure you take time to pray with them, talk to them. Uh, over this next week and just thank them for what they've done in building this church with worship, okay? That being said, grab your Bibles, please. Um, as I said, there's sort of a change in style of worship. We're going to uh, begin this morning right off the bat with the sermon. So, uh, boom, hello, get your coffee, here we roll. Um, we're going to dig right into God's Word. And uh, then we're saving a time of worship after the service because we have communion today. So we're going to have a time of communion and worship after the sermon. Now the next four months, oh, four months, wow. Next four weeks, that's a long series if we're doing four months. Next four weeks, we are in a series called The Battle of the Sexes. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm sure all kinds of things come to your mind. So let me tell you this. First of all, turn to the book of Esther. It's Old Testament, okay? Taking Battle of the Sexes, we're looking at Esther. What is this all going to be about? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not what you thought. Okay? Whatever you're thinking right now about the battle of the sexes, um, I'm going to tell you it's probably not what you're thinking. So let me get, help you out with this. This is not a series where we're going to discuss the differences between men and women. It may come up. It may. I, I believe we're all aware that we are different, male and female. We look different. We act different. We behave different. We talk different. We know that when men pack, it takes what? Five minutes or less in a big baggie, right? We just throw it in there. We're ready to go. When women pack, oh boy. Um, they need a month to figure it out, right? What am I going to need? What are the kids going to need? What activities are we going to be doing? Um, what are the little things that I might forget when I get there? That I need to make sure I have those things. Ladies, am I sort of correct on that maybe? Guys, am I sort of correct on that maybe? Pack it and run, right? So we know there's a difference there. Maybe getting ready in the morning. Gentlemen, maybe it takes you five minutes and it takes the ladies 55 minutes. I don't know. Maybe it's vice versa for some of you. I don't know. Word usage. We know that ladies use twice as many words as men do. Unless men grunt, then ladies you use about 100 times more words than men do. Um, but 
Again, that's the way we're created. Men are different than women. When you're in public, women, I don't understand this, you gather in a group to visit the ladies' room. Just ask any gentleman, guys, do we go around and say, hey, guys, you know, head of the men's room, want to go? With? That doesn't happen. Doesn't make sense to us. Doesn't calculate up here, right? We don't get it. But what we're discovering, all these things that I'm sharing with you right now, the differences, it's, it's a relational thing. Uh, psychologist Michael Connor said this, men and women approach problems with similar goals but different considerations. While men and women can solve problems equally well, their approach, their process are different. And he shared this, for women, sharing and discussing a problem presents an opportunity to explore, to deepen their relationship with the person they're talking with. And women are usually more concerned about how this problem is going to be solved than merely solving the problem itself. For women, solving the problem can, can profoundly impact how they feel closer with one another or maybe alone and trying to solve it. And so it's a relational thing in solving the problem. That's what psychologist Michael Connor says. Now he says it's about men in solving problems and that is this. We approach problems in a very different manner. We see a problem as an opportunity to demonstrate our competence, our strength to resolve, and our commitment to a relationship, right? How the problem is solved is not nearly as important as solving it effectively in a neat possible manner. So ladies, you sort of take a problem as an opportunity to let's work together and let's, let's see how we can sort of figure this one out. And the guy's like, let's get this done, okay? Uh, I'm going to do it right now. Sound right? Again, that's his thoughts on that. So having said all that about the differences between men and women, let me say this. The sermon's not about that. The series is not about that. We're not going to walk out of here saying, you are so different. And, yep, you are. And let's celebrate that, right? We are different. But that's not what the series is about. Here's what the series is about. I want to know this. How can men and women come together and serve God together? How can we work together to do things that give God glory? How can we worship together. And understanding how God uniquely created men and women in such a wonderful way, in such a different way that's just awesome, how can we come together as brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives, as friends, men and women, work together, serve together, and worship together? How can we effectively do that and glorify God's kingdom? So turn in your Bibles, if you are not there yet, to the book of Esther. It's Old Testament. We're going to look at a story that took place in 590 B.C., long time ago. The Jewish people were released from captivity, but now a small remnant returns. But yet some of the people say, we like it where we're at, so we're going to stay put. So a lot of people stayed in Persia. We'll discover that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. If you're to read through it from start to finish, and you're looking for God's name, or for somebody to give God glory, you're not going to find it. It's very unique. However, as you read through, you're going to discover this. God's hands are all over the place. The providence of God is everywhere and how God works. It's an amazing book in that manner. So as we discover this and we read through this, um, the question is, what are we going to learn from the book of Esther about men and women? Here's this very simple today. It's sort of an intro to this whole series. We're just going to deal with chapter 1 today. And the one problem I see in how men and women can relate together is sometimes we let our pride or we let power get in the way of doing what God's called us to do together. 
we think this person should be doing this and this person should be doing that. Well, that's their role. She's a woman, she should be doing it. He's a man, he should be doing this. Or husbands, what is my role? Or wives, what is my role? And we try to figure all this out. But in chapter 1 here, we're going to discover that pride and power can quickly derail us. And so we want to discover a little bit more about that today. Just give you a heads up where we're going. So let's turn to Esther chapter 1 and let's begin reading. Chapter 1, verse 1. This happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces. Let me hear you say that's a lot. That's a lot. 127 provinces. Stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, he ruled the empire from his throne at the fortress of Susa. Now, this king inherited the vast Persian Empire from King Darius. King Darius sound familiar by chance? Remember reading through the book of Daniel and Ezra and a few other uh, prophets, they talk about King Darius. The fact of uh, the existence of this king and circumstance is extremely well attested. You can find this documented in ancient history, different writings. This isn't a made up like, well, is this story sort of made up since God's not mentioned? Archaeologists have uh, discovered the ruins of the very palace where these events happen. This is all real. And again, part of this church that we believe is that God's word is truth. There is no error there. But sometimes people are out there like, well, this looks like a good story. This is truth. And so the wonderful thing is when they discover and they dig up all these things, archaeologists, it, they're just giving us more reason to say what we believe is true. Um, but the fact of this, uh, we go on to read here, is that during this time, King Xerxes was planning for an invasion of Greece, which is going to take place several years later. So in preparation for this big invasion, he gets everybody together because he's going to show off his power. Okay, this is what you do if you're a king. You want people to know how powerful you are. You want to flex your muscles. Guys, get, you know, they get in the weight room. They want to know, let people know how big they are. They stand in front of the mirror, and they wear, you know, cutoffs, right? Because they want to show how powerful they are. And when you're in power, when you're big, or, or when, you know, whatever your job is, you want people to see you're strong. They want to see, they want you to know that you're powerful, right? King Xerxes flexes his muscles here. He oversees 127 provinces. The Persian Empire is the largest the world's ever seen. To help you understand this, it covers what today we would see as in Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, parts of modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. That's the territory King Xerxes covers. It's huge. It's huge. Let's look at verse 3 and read on there. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and officials. He invited all the military officers of Media and Persia, as well as the noblemen and provincial officials. The celebration lasted six months. Let me hear you say, wow. Now, I, I can handle three hours of a graduation party. Barely, okay? Six months of partying? Are you kidding me? This is huge. This is, and it goes on find out what kind of party this is. It says, it was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth and glory of his empire. Again, he's flexing his, his king muscles here. Look at my army. Look at my palace. Look at the food I'm serving you. Look at the wine I'm serving you. Look at, look at the ladies over here. Look at my buildings over here. He is just showing everything off for six months. This is a big party. Verse 5. When it was all over, the king gave a special banquet for the palace servants and officials. Oh, so the party's not done. From the greatest to the least, it lasted for seven days. It was held at Seuss in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was decorated with beautifully woven white and blue linen hangings. 
fastened by purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold, silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyr and marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, just as the king commanded. The only restriction of the drinking was that no one should be compelled to take more than he wanted. But those who wished could have as much as they pleased, for the king had instructed his staff to let everyone decide this matter for himself. Let me translate for you. Everybody here is just going to drink and drink and drink and drink. Follow me? This was, yeah, I heard an uh-oh. Exactly. It's a big uh-oh. When all these people are being commanded by the king, you get as drunk as you want, people. Just do what you want to do. I don't want you to be as happy as you can. So I'm actually making an edict, an edict a rule, a law that you shall drink. Oh, it was a great response. Let's read on here. Verse 9, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for women of the palace at the same time. So at the same time, this first feast, which lasted, how long again was that? Six months. Okay, that one comes to an end. Then the next one lasts how many days? Seven days. Meanwhile, the queen's having her own little banquet. There's a lot of stuff going on here, right? When you think about all this, showing off the glory and the splendor, the riches of the kingdom and all this, you know, there's obviously a big party here. We can't help but step back and say, wow, there's a lot of celebration taking place here. But why? Why is this all going on? Again, there's a big pride issue. Let me hear you say pride hurts. Pride can go both ways. We'll talk about that in a second. But in this moment here, I want you to understand that the pride of this king and his kingdom was all about showing off his power and his glory and his splendor. He knew that all these people that were coming from different provinces coming in, he's basically telling them, we're about ready to invade Greece down the road here. And I want you to know that my army is the biggest army. I want you to know that I have the power. And I want you all to have the confidence to join me in this battle. His pride was showing what he had, but also what he wanted to accomplish, which was a big task. And so he gets on display all of his wealth and power and majesty and generosity. But do you remember what Jesus said? We were fast-forwarding about 600-plus years. Jesus said in Matthew 20, he said this, This is typical the way that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Jesus said, this is typical. This is what they do. This is what kings who are full of pride do. They show off their power, right? And those who are great exercise authority over them. That's what Jesus said. You think among some of the banquets here, each guest was, again, obliged to drink in the current round, or you had to leave the party. If you didn't drink what the king said, you had to leave. So they're drinking up. Second feast, king's commanding, and everyone drink again as he pleases. And then let me just say this. Things got out of hand real quick. Meanwhile, third feast, like I said, was going on for the ladies. So you remember the queen, she's at her party. The king's at his party. And there's all this partying. Something ugly rears its head. And I already gave you that word, and it is pride. As the king's showing off his power, he's getting drunk. He's having a crazy good time in his eyes, and his pride swells up. And before I tell you what he did, let me share a couple stories with you to tell you how pride can really hurt. This took place in the summer of 86. Two ships collided in the Black Sea uh, off the coast of Russia. None of us probably remember that story. But here's what happened. Hundreds of passengers died as these two ships in the icy waters collided. Now, everybody was wondering, how could these two ships run into each other? Maybe there was fog. Maybe there's weather issues. 
maybe it was some kind of technical problem that went on where the radars weren't working, they weren't communicating very well. The truth is, when it came out, it was none of those things. Not a radar malfunction, not thick fog, none of that. It was pride. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. Each captain knew the ship was on course, coming their way in the same way they were going. Neither captain budged. Neither of them wanted to give way. According to news reports, as the captains kept their stubbornness and their pride, by the time the ships got close enough, it was too late for either one to steer away. They collided. Hundreds of people died. Tragic, isn't it? How pride goes. During the Battle of the Wilderness of the Civil War, and some of you may remember this, Union General John Sedwick was inspecting his troops. He was on his horse at one point in time. He's riding out looking at his troops. The enemy's out there. Uh, and he's going to overlook the enemy and see what's going on. And some of his men said, Sir, with all due respect, you probably should not be riding on your horse where everybody can see you. Um, you might you know, want to duck. You might want to get off that horse. They tried to print, uh, sort of get him off, and he wouldn't do it. This is his words. Nonsense, snapped the general. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And before he finished the sentence, he was shot and killed. Pride. It's an ugly thing. It gets the best of us. And often, here's the thing, though, we think about pride in a bad way, as I'm sharing with you right now. But we also know there's a good pride, too. There's a pride when we see a sense of accomplishment in people's lives. I've seen it a lot in the last couple of weeks, uh, graduations and different ceremonies and awards moments. When students have worked hard and they achieve something, there's a sense of pride like I did it. And you look at parents, and you look at those parents and say, tried so hard to raise my kid up the right way, and you can see maybe the pride on the parent's face as they watch their child go across and get their diploma, or as they get an award, or they get a pat on the back they haven't gotten. And you see that, that good sense of pride. I actually had a couple of people tell me, Rex, we looked on, um, saw your picture on Facebook. You had such a proud look on your face um, for Colin. And I was like, I've never heard that before. I know what a happy face looks like. I know what a sad face looks like. You know, I know what a ridiculous face looks like. But I've never heard that said before, a proud face. I went back and looked at that picture and think, okay, is this, well, I was, yeah, I was proud of him. Way to go, son, you know. Um, but it's, there's good pride and there's bad pride. Jesus is the perfect example of how we should do everything. And despite his amazing abilities, his miracles, his lordship, his teachings, his sacrifice, his resurrection from death, his sinless life. Jesus was never prideful. He was always humble. And you read through Philippians. We read last week about how he served. He, he washed the feet of his disciples and how he was very humble. And you compare Jesus to King Xerxes and it's like night and day. Huge contrast, right? I want you to think about just for a moment. Ask yourself, am I tend to be more of a humble person, more of a proud person. How would you rate yourself right now? I mean, it does no good for us to go through Scripture and read without pausing every now and then and say, all right, God, work through me. Is this an issue with me right now? Am I struggling? You know, for, uh, for athletes, I always sit there and say, okay, let me ask you this. Pride or humility, do you, do you talk about your opponent or do you use encouraging words? 
Do you keep track of your individual stats or do you cheer on the team and what the team is doing? Uh, do you cheat or do you play by the rules? See, both one of those pride and the other one's being humble, right? One brags about their self after the win and the other one brags about others after they win. There's a difference there. Sometimes you argue with the officials and sometimes you say, you know what, I'm going to listen to the officials. Pride and humility. You can go either way with that. When I share that with athletes, I remind them, listen, pride can be a good thing. You ought to be proud of what God's given you as far as a gift and, and using. But if you swing it the other way and say, it's all about me and I want you to see me, then your pride's become ugly. There's a story in the New Testament, Matthew 20, where James and John, two of Jesus' disciples and their mom, um, they're having a little talk with Jesus. Okay, moms, dads, for the coach, calls you make to your coaches, hey coach, can my kid, or, or hey teacher, can I, okay. Jesus had one of those moments. He's walking with his disciples, and James and John's mom comes up and sort of walks alongside Jesus and says this, promise, she said, that these two sons of mine may sit with you, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Slash, hey, can my son be a starter on this team? Hey, my kid's really good. They ought to be in first chair. You know? So let me say something. The problems we have as parents sometimes with the pride of our kids, wanting them to be in first or wherever position, it goes back to Jesus' day, okay? The mother of James and John is walking with Jesus, asking for left and right seat position in the kingdom. Jesus looked at the two brothers standing nearby, and he asked them a question. He said this, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the same cup that I'm going to drink of? Oh, we're able to, they said to Jesus. James and John had no idea what the response, their response was so wrong. Jesus said, it's not for him to decide, but rather God the Father. All these other disciples, they were a little mad at James and John because, you know, Jesus taught them about humility. He said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and men of high position exercise power over them. Did we just read that earlier? It must not be like that among you. Jesus says, that pride has no position in my family. Humility. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give a life and a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came here to serve you, not be served. Take note of what I'm doing. We talked about this last week with servanthood. A great way to lead is to serve, right? But I want you to understand what we didn't talk about last week in servanthood was the pride. Let's look back here now in Scripture, verse 10, and see what happened, what pride led to. On the seventh day of the feast, it's coming to an end. They are, they've had a little too much of everything. King Xerxes, half drunk with wine, told his different men that were surrounding him and the seven eunuchs that were there who attended him said, Bring Queen Vashti to me with the royal crown on her head. I want all the men to gaze at her beauty, for she is a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused them. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. The king's wife had enough. I'm not going to do what my husband wants. I'm not going to do what the king wants. But there's a reason why. Because the king is behaving badly. I don't know how it all went down. We can make a good guess. But if you can imagine a room full of men, they've been drinking, drinking, drinking seven days after six months of this, 
And they're talking about all your power and everything. Hey, king, man, we've seen the horses and chariots. We've seen the swords and the spears. We've seen your palace. We haven't seen your wife and all the women. Powerful man. You have the best of the best. I bet she's pretty best, isn't she? Why don't you strut around here and show us your wife? Why don't you unveil her and let us see her in all of her beauty? This wasn't one of those, well, just, you know, show me a little glimpse or tell me about her. These men were not behaving well at all. How should a king behave? Well, let me compare something. Actually, we're in Esther. If you want to, you can stick your bulletin right there. And we're going to go back towards the front of the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book there in the Old Testament, chapter 17. How should a king behave? I mean, obviously, this king was not behaving too well. And God actually set up some guidelines. He told his people, listen, um, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, you do not need an earthly king. I am your king. But I know as uh, human beings, you'll be disobedient. You're going to try to set up your own king. So if you do set up a king, which you probably will, which I already know you will, I'm God and I know all this, here's guidelines for how you have a king. Deuteronomy 17, pick it up in verse 14. You'll soon arrive in the land your God has given you. You'll conquer it, conquer it and settle there. Then you may begin to think, we ought to have a king like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure you select a king the man, the Lord, your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite, not a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself, must never send his people to Egypt to buy horses there. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. That's a key thing right there. Verse 17. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will lead him away from the Lord. He must not accumulate vast amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. Verse 18. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy these laws on a scroll for himself in the presence of the Levitical priest. He must always keep this copy of the law with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of the law. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. This will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. God said, listen, if you set up a king, which I know you're going to do, okay, here's how a king should behave. Let me give you five points real quick, okay? Here's the first one. Locate yourself in the right place. Don't go back to Egypt, he said. Don't go back there and buy horses and stuff. Where was Egypt for these people? It was a place of bondage and slavery. We get messed up in a lot of sin in our lives, and then we find Jesus Christ. We surrender to him. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We become new in Christ. What do we need to do now? Stay new in Christ. Don't go back to those old lifestyles, those bad habits. That's bondage. That's slavery. Don't go back to Egypt. That's the first thing, okay? Let me say something here before I go on, okay? When God warned his people here about picking a king, this is not just a job description for king. This is a job description for leaders. And as we read through the Bible now, as we go through Deuteronomy all the way back to Revelation, guess what? 
we discover these are principles that God teaches all the way through. So it's not just for leaders, it is for every Christian believer. So everybody here this morning, you're not a king or a queen, but in actually in God's eye, you are his children, you are his princes and his princesses, right? You are royalty, you are part of God's family. So part of God's family is this. This is how we should behave. First of all, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to those places that are going to trip you up and cause you to sin. Here's the second thing. One wife. One spouse. Translation, okay? That's pretty simple. Faithful to one. Third thing. Focus should not be on wealth, but on God. Oh, it's nice to accumulate those things, but that should not be our focus. Congratulations if you've got a job, a position where you've been able to accumulate things, but it's not about that. It's the focus on God. Use what God's given you for His good. Make sure the focus is on God. Here's the fourth thing. Own a copy of God's Word and read it daily. Did you see what he said in verse 18? When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy these laws on a scroll for himself in the presence of the Levitical priests. Levitical priests were the only ones that were allowed to make copies of God's Word. But if you're going to be the king, you will sit down next to the Levitical priests and you will copy word for word the Bible. I'm not going to ask how many of you ever got in trouble when you had to go up to the chalkboard. This is for an older generation, by the way. And had to write up there, I will not chew gum in class, or whatever, you know? And just like I had to write over and over and over and over, right? It's like, oh, I got to do this. And you're like, my arm's tired. I can't do this anymore. Oh, you got 200 more times, write it again. So maybe you've had to do something like that. Maybe some of you have written thank yous over and over and over. Can you imagine? Check out how thick our Bibles are. Now, of course, obviously, the New Testament wasn't there when the king was writing. But can you imagine writing word for word God's word? How familiar do you think you're going to become with his word? Very familiar, right? Well, the good news is God's not asking you. He might. His spirit might say, hey, do this. But God's not asking you to write it. It's already written. But he is asking us to read it, to know it, to live it. And here's the fifth thing in there, and that is to have a humble attitude. This will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. You'll be put in a position to lead, and it needs to be a humble position. As I said, these things were written for all of us. Now, let me ask you this. Does King Xerxes fit the description in Deuteronomy 17? Yes or no? Not one bit. God set it up. This is the way the kings are supposed to be, but we've discovered this king in an ungodly nation of Persia is not living anywhere close, which he probably is not going to because he doesn't believe in God. Right? Vashti refuses to give in to the king's demands. She understands Persia. Okay, we need to understand this. Persia is modern-day Iran, okay? So the women are completely covered in robe, veiled. That's the way women are in, in, uh, over there, okay? So the custom in that culture, especially at the time, is the beauty of the woman is reserved only for the husband. So ladies, if we were there in this culture in that time, you'd be completely covered. We maybe see your eyes. We wouldn't even be in the same room together, actually. But if we were in the same room, you'd be covered. Why is that? Because the only one that's going to see your face and any other part of your body, even bare shoulders or an arm, is your husband. That's it. You need to know that even today, over there, uh, and I have a buddy, his name is Mike White. He takes mission trips to Israel all the time. He takes people over to the Middle East. And he has had problems with Americans who come over on these trips to Israel with ladies who wear a little bit more than they, or wear a little bit less than what they should be wearing. And we'd sit there and say, oh, that's perfectly acceptable in America. The problem is, in that country, men look at women. If you are unveiled and uncovered in any way, the man says, 
I can do whatever I want to do with you. You've given me permission to touch you, to do anything I want to do to you. Sounds nasty, right? That's the culture. So understand that when Queen Vashti is asked, hey, come on in here and parade yourself unveiled and probably unclothed, that was normal for them. But despicable and very un well, I don't say how to say bad behavior, but very uncharacteristic of any king who should be ruling in a godly way. So these men were seeing all the king's powers or riches. They wanted to see the wife. They wanted to see her beauty. She says, no way. Not doing this. You're behaving badly. I will not reveal myself or unveil myself in front of all you men. I understand you're all drunk. You're all crazy. And if I put myself in there, something horrible is probably going to happen to me. So she chooses to not be a part of that. Now, though she is not by any means a follower of God, she had enough wisdom and modesty to know how to escape that situation. She said no. Now we know the Bible says wives have a special responsibility, right? To submit to their husbands. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, it says in Ephesians 5. Yet, it doesn't mean that a wife must obey her husband if he's commanding her to do something sinful. And in this situation, they're not even Christians. So that scripture really doesn't even apply to the two of them. And there are various Jewish traditions saying why she refused, and we don't know why for sure, but she was in a dangerous situation. She was not going to put herself there. Let me say this. Unfortunately today, sadly, a lot of women put themselves in dangerous situations, especially where alcohol is involved. And it's very showing a very severe lack of wisdom. Nevertheless, it certainly gives no justification for men to sin against women in such an unwise situation. We see it all the time today. Happens on college campuses every single day. Multiple. You just don't hear about it. It's a very dangerous situation. Look at verse 13. As we read on here, go back to Esther, chapter 1, verse 13. The king immediately consults with his advisors, and uh, we're going to sort of skip through here, but he gets them all together, the closest associates, highest positions, and he says, what are we going to do about this? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders and all this? Well, look at verse 16. They come up with this. One of them says this, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every other official and citizen through your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that what the queen's done. Verse 18, before this day is out, the wife of every one of us, your officials throughout the empire, will hear that the queen, what the queen did will start talking to their husbands the same way. There'll be no end to the contempt and anger throughout your realm. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that the queen be forever banished from your presence. And you choose another queen worthy than she. When this decree is published through the empire, hundreds, I'm sorry, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Now, King gets his friends together. They advise him what he should do. Very unreasonable, very ungodly what they do. But again, these aren't godly men, so don't expect godliness. You know, you hear it all the time in power. Um, people always get upset with the NFL commissioner. Why don't they fix the NFL? Why are these guys beating their wives, getting drunk, killing people, and yet they can go play football? The commissioner should do something. Can I say something? If the commissioner is not a Christian, why are we expecting him to do something? This is the sport of football. It's a game. It is not a church. It is not a godly institution. So don't expect godliness from ungodly institutions. 
Don't expect your TV to turn on and ungodly shows to not be there when it's an ungodly thing. So we can't expect in this situation to the king of Persia here, King Xerxes, to make a godly choice when he's not a godly man. Just make sure we're on the same page on this. So Xerxes wants to reinforce the idea that a man's leadership is, should be in the home. They're afraid that her example is going to cause husbands everywhere to fall down and be lack of respect from their wives and so forth and so on. So the goal presented here was pretty admirable, and that was this. Ladies, please respect the men. That was sort of the goal, right? Which we know in the Bible that that should happen. Women should respect men, but we forget there's a second part of that that Paul says, and that is what? About men. A, right, a wife's respect is one of the most precious gifts. Ladies, you can give your husband respect. That's an awesome gift. But what else does it say? Husbands are supposed to lay down our lives for the women as Christ laid down his life, to abandon our own agenda for our wife. It goes both ways. The queen, I'm sorry, the king didn't want both ways. He wanted it all about himself. He's such a proud man, such a powerful man that it hurt his queen. Now, what does this have to do with the battle of the sexes? You know, as I was reading through this first chapter, and you're going to understand more as we get into this series in the next three weeks, but why don't you understand this, and that is God has placed men and women in position to lead. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are all in here in a position to lead one way or another. Oh, but I don't have a title. I don't, I don't have this position. You have been placed in position to make incredible choices. If you are a mom or a dad, you have incredible and opportunity and responsibility to raise up godly kids. If your workplace is that of you have somebody working underneath you, guess what? You have an incredible position of leadership. If you volunteer, you mentor, you help anywhere, you have an incredible position to influence others. All of us in this room, in one way or another, have a position to make an impact on other people. But if we let power and pride rule in our hearts, we will destroy others. So I want to encourage you with this, from this chapter. When you go and living your life and doing it God's way, I want to challenge you to do it this way. First of all, let's go back to the way of the king, Deuteronomy 17. Locate yourself in the right position to lead. Do not go back to a sinful life. If you struggle with certain sinful habits, make sure you've X off those spots. Don't go there. Don't touch that. Don't, just stay away from it. If you struggle with something, stay away from it. Find somebody that holds you accountable, a friend, a co-worker. Somebody who says, hey, I know you struggle with this. I'm going to make sure you don't go that direction. Okay? Here's the second thing we need to do, and that is be faithful to one. Be faithful to one. Gentlemen, be faithful to your wives. Ladies, be faithful to your husbands. Dating relationships, teenagers, young people, listen, please. Be faithful to one. Be faithful to one. Okay? Focus should be on God, not your wealth. It's not about making the big bucks. It's not about accumulating the tallest trophy. It should be accumulating a relationship with God that's irreplaceable. Fourth thing, own your own copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible, come see us. We will get you a Bible. We will get you two Bibles. How many Bibles you need, you only need one, right? But get a Bible. Get in God's Word daily. Discover what He's tell telling you and leading you. And the last thing is, have a humble attitude. God, God, do not let my pride go bad. 
God, I, I want to make sure that I am like you, a humble servant, looking at others first. This is a way which we, as people of God, need to learn to walk. There's a way in which we treat one another. If we sit on the throne of our own lives and demand our own good, our own pleasure, and selfishly seek our own way, we're going to hurt those we love. And King Xerxes hurt the one he loved because of his power and pride. Now we see, though, as we go into the story next week, the providence of God is why this went down the way it did. But be careful of pride, be careful of the power, because those things will cause us to make some very ungodly decisions. Instead of comparing one another, men and women, differences and all that, let's come together as men and women, pray for one another, pray for each other's position, pray for these things that we talked about. And we're going to have a time of communion here soon. And when we have this communion, communion is a time of remembering what Christ did for us. He humbled himself, came from heaven, humbled himself to become a human being, to die for us. When we take the cup, it represents his blood. When we take the bread, it represents his body. The body that was broken, the blood that was shed to create a new covenant, a new relationship with him. And when you think about this, he humbled himself. The day he instituted that very thing, the Lord's Supper, the, the Last Supper, the communion, was when he washed his disciples' feet. He showed himself, this is what I'm doing to be humble. Do as I am doing and you will be blessed, he said. And then you broke bread and took the cup. We're going to do that. We'll have a time of prayer. We're going to sing some first. I'm going to read some scripture. Then we're going to let you go to the tables and, and grab communion on your own. You can pray with one another or you can pray by yourself. You take the communion, come back to the chairs. But during that time, say, God, do not let my power, do not let my pride interfere my relationship with you, my inner relationship with others. I want to have a healthy relationship with other people, especially in this church. Amen? Would you please stand? I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for being an awesome and mighty God. Lord, you look in the scripture and we just see an incredible thing that takes place with this king and, and um, his pride. Well, the power he had was incredible. His pride got away and destroyed him. And instead of having a great relationship with his wife, and, and Lord, we know that the relationships back then culturally is a little different than what we see now. But that was destroyed because of his pride. And Lord, who knows what other kind of relationships he could have had, but he didn't because of his pride and power. And Lord, we discover when we start behaving badly and making bad choices, power swells, the pride swells. Before long, we're not anywhere close to where we be, should be in living for you. Lord, I thank you for the scripture in Deuteronomy that reminds us how a king should behave, how a leader should behave. And gave us some specific guidelines for what we could do. So I thank you for that, God. Lord, I pray this morning as we're here worshiping you, as we're going to sing to you. Lord, work in our hearts. Lord, if there's anything that we've been very prideful this week where we just would not relent to an argument. We had to be right, but we knew we were wrong. Lord, help us go back to that person and say, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you were right. I just didn't want to lose that argument. Maybe we were stubborn about doing something because, again, we wanted to be right. So, Lord, I ask that in those moments, Lord, again, forgive us for our pride. 
Forgive us for our pride. We didn't, we didn't want to be laughed at, so we didn't tell somebody about you. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, when we put money ahead of you. There's a lot of things, Lord, in, in our pride we don't realize we're doing, but we're really cheapening our relationship with you and with those around us. So, Lord, cleanse us from pride. Cleanse us from the hunger for power. Let us thirst for you instead. Let us hunger for you instead. Lord, we love you, praise you, and we're going to worship you.